Good afternoon. You are tuned to Ross FM 94.6. I'm your host, Kira Lawless, and this is my co-host... Susie Savannah Hogan. <laughs> and this is the show, Raiders of the Lost Worlds. And if you've been listening, then I'm sure you are very curious, and may you be very curious and continue to be, because we're going to be diving very deep today. So Susie, tell us all, what are we going to be going into? So we're going to follow up. I don't know if some of you remember our show where we had PhD student Kylie Crowder on. So uh, she was talking about battlefield archaeology um, and she's one of the very, very few practitioners of battlefield archaeology in Ireland. So we're going to bring her back on today to talk about her research. Absolutely. And I suppose you have a piece there as well. You were going to call out, Susie. Yeah. About the battle. Yeah. So what Kylie's been studying is the 1798 rebellion. And her research focuses on the rebellion of 1798, specifically General Humbert's campaign in the West and the Midlands of Ireland in the late summer of that year. This rebellion was an uprising by the United Irishmen, a Republican revolutionary group influenced by the ideals of the American and French revolutions against British rule in Ireland. Much of the fighting took place in the east, and this front lasted from May to June. These eastern rebels were effectively defeated on the 21st of June at the Battle of Vinegar Hill in County Wexford. And on August 27, sorry, on August 22nd, General Humbert, a French revolutionary general, belatedly arrived off the coast of County Mayo with a force of 1,100 men. He was quickly joined by a large number of local rebels and Beginning a two-week campaign, he moved eastwards before being defeated on the 8th of September at the Battle of Ballinamuck in County Longford. This campaign has become a major event in the cultural and heritage memory of North Connacht, traditionally known as, oh, it's look, it's Irish, I'm not even going to go there, um, the Year of the French. Humbert moved through the counties of Mayo, Sligo, Leitrim, Roscommon, along the shores of um, Loch Allen, and Longford. Longford, Wow. So we're going to be going all into that today. Yeah, with Kylie. Good afternoon. You are listening to Ross FM 94.6. I'm your host, Kira Lawless, and this is my co-host. Susie Savannah Hogan. And we are here on Raiders of the Lost Worlds, and we're delighted to be joined by a fabulous guest on the phone, Kylie Crowder. And Susie, I'm going to let you do the rest of the introductions about Kylie. Hi, Kylie. Kylie is a PhD student at NUIG. So the University of Galway, and she is uh, doing her PhD in is it landscape archaeology, Kylie? Uh, it's just archaeology. Yeah. So in archaeology, and focusing in particular on the 1798 rebellion and General Humbert's campaign. So, Kylie, uh, in this focusing on General Humbert's campaign, what uh, what would be the the main highlights that you'd be looking at? Um, so I'm just focusing on his movement from in the west of Ireland. So he landed in Killala with his troops in County Mayo, and they would have traveled down through Ballina and Castlebar and then back up through Sligo in Tobercurry and Caluni, and then down through Leitrim and a tiny bit of Roscommon, and then into Longford for the final battle in Ballinamuck. So I'm just focusing on those six battles and the movement between them. So why this rebellion in particular? Um, so for a couple of reasons. So for my, my research, I'm focusing on looking at battlefields a bit differently. They would traditionally be kind of studied as 
as individual sites. Their their studies is kind of separate for each, from each other, and for a lot of battles, that's fine. That works fine um, because they would be more isolated events. But I think for a lot of them, they're more landscapes. They're connected to the movement for these campaigns that you have in military in military landscapes, and you can't really disconnect them from the what happens in between the battles. I think that's just as important as what happens on the actual battlefield. And so this rebellion is is a good case study for that. Um, but also, this this rebellion is really, it's, for me, looking at it historically, it's very interesting because this is the, it's, in a line of a lot of Irish rebellions. I mean, there's been rebellions from Irish people trying to get rid of British control since it came. Um, and so, but this is the in the long line of that. And then it doesn't really stop after this, though. They just keep, it's kind of the the kickoff point of just constant rebellion from, from Irish rebels until they finally get rid of the British control with the 1916, 1921, 1922 uprisings. So... It's kind of an interesting point in Irish history, I think, this rebellion. That is very cool. Um, so in looking at these different landscapes and that rebellion, what do you sort of, sort of what, like what methods do you use? To, because a landscape is a big thing. Yeah, so when I'm looking at the landscape in general, like the whole landscape, I just look at the relationship between the battles and the movements. I do a lot of what's called Kokoa analysis. So it's a military terrain analysis um, technique that's used in military tactics, but also in a lot of battlefield studies. Um, and it just kind of is a way to look at the terrain from a tactical perspective. So I do a lot of that on the landscape. And then I did a particular survey on the Battle of Balanamuk, um, looking for what I could find on that particular battlefield on a more intense survey with more traditional battlefield archaeological techniques. And so I did a geophysical survey looking for mass graves, and I did a metal detection survey um, looking for finds associated, so like musket balls or belt buckles or buttons or things like that. But what was interesting is I'm not able to excavate at all. I didn't pick up anything. I didn't dig or anything. So it was kind of interesting what I was able to find out without actually having to dig or disturb the site at all. So So there's two questions there. Um, the first one is is why do you not excavate? Um, so I couldn't get the I couldn't get the licensing to excavate. That's why I didn't I would love to excavate. Um, I couldn't get the licensing to do it for my PhD. Um, and also it just it disturbs the site and so you just want to be really, really sure before you do any excavation because as amazing as excavation is and as much as it can tell you about an archaeological site, it does, in theory, ruin the site. So, I mean, you just want to be ready for it. And I'm, I'm not that. Since I have such a large landscape scale, I wasn't ready for that level of investigation. So um, I just did the survey and that would be more my area of expertise anyway. Okay, perfect. And so could you, for our listeners who don't know, explain geophysical survey? Yeah, so what I did for the geophysics was I was looking for mass graves, so pits basically, and I did something called electrical resistance survey and magnetic gradiometry survey, which sounds really impressive and fancy, but it's basically just setting up um, grids on over the land, over the field that I was doing it in, and then you there's different machines that you use for each technique, 
and you just take readings from them. So the electrical resistance is two probes. It sends electrical um, signals down into the ground, which bounces back off of rock or different kinds of soil, and it just takes different magnetic readings in the ground, and that gives us maps. It gives us data that we can then turn into maps so that we can see if there's pits or anything in the ground. Um, so it's the tech, like, I think geophysical survey is really, really cool. Like, I, I was just looking for pits, but I have friends and colleagues that do it, and, like, you can basically map entire Roman towns or castles or whatever that are not seen or whatever. You can map them entirely just by doing geophysical survey, and so I just think it's really cool. Yeah, I have to say, uh, I, I enjoyed it when I was studying. I found it really interesting. And then a little bit more about the metal detecting. So I, I helped you with uh, some of that in the field, and I found it really quite uh, fascinating once we started seeing where we would get um, hits. So maybe explain some of that a little bit further to everyone. Yeah, so metal detecting, I know it's really controversial in this country in particular. Um, yes. I would like to say the caveat before I say anything, that please, please, please do not metal detect if you do not have a license. Please only metal detect if you are licensed from the Monument Service to do it. I was. I did get a license to do it. So that's And my... actually, it is, that's important just very quickly because the thing is these, these are national treasures and pieces of heritage. So if just quick, just a quick insertion here if anyone ever finds something that they think is an art artifact it's really important that they either hand it into a local university or a heritage center or a county council yeah, office but mostly i would hand it into a, a, an archaeology department to the national Muse museum in of archaeology in in dublin um or or a local heritage center because these are important they help uh piece together our past so yeah yeah, and most important to artifacts that I think people don't understand is their provenance, so where we find them in the ground. Correct. So the minute that you pick it up out of the ground, it's not ruined, but we there's so much information lost. So if you do ever find anything, please call somebody. Yeah, call somebody, or if you can't, take <laughs> extensive notes. Write down where was it found, what was around the, 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 yeah. the area, what's the soil like, are there trees around, has it been disturbed, how did you find it, was it surface layer, were you digging? These are all important questions. Like We need to know these things if you, if you do find something that you hand in. So, you know, yeah. yeah, so yeah, so sorry, go on, back to the metal detector. Yeah, so that's my soapbox, I just wanted to take a minute because I know metal detection is very controversial, so nope, I glad we did to say that before I went on, but um, so what I did was I metal detected three different fields, and I was looking for, so what they would traditionally do is you metal detect, and you would pick up the finds as you find them, or you would flag them, there's different ways, there's different methods that different archaeologists use on different sites. Um, and then you're able to tell the distribution of basically kind of what happened because if there's a cluster of a certain type of musket ball, then that's, that's probably a line of fire um, from, like, government troops. So for my campaign, it's government troops, so British forces, which a lot of them were Irish, but so that's why I say government troops, but the, Brit the government forces and the French forces and the Irish rebels, and so they use two different kinds of guns. They use two different kinds of muskets that have two different kinds of musket balls. So you're able to, depending on clusters of those and clusters of finds, you can kind of determine where everyone was standing. It's kind of cool. You can kind of see, like, lines of fire and 
what because, would happen. And what, because um, the different muskets would have different uh, trajectory, trajectories for their... for they, their... Because they have different musket balls. Okay, so just different musket I wasn't balls. Able, I wasn't okay. able to determine anything to that detail because I couldn't excavate anything that I okay. found. I couldn't pick up anything. So mine is all theoretical. It's based off of just iron, like, or not iron, just the lead finds that I had and things like that. But a lot of it, like... They did work down in Vinegar Hill, which is another battle associated with this rebellion in the east. So not my campaign, but the other front of the battle of the of the rebellion. And um, they were able to kind of find the lines of battle and they were kind of they were able to recreate what happened on the field based off of, well, we found a bunch of these types of musket balls here and we found a bunch of these buttons here and we found a bunch of these types of musket balls here. And so it's really metal detection, if used correctly for battlefields, can really just completely recreate what happened. It's very cool. That sounds amazing. I was just going to say, Kylie, can you tell us about, I suppose, the teeny bit of Roscommon that General Humbert would have went through? Yeah, of course. Um, so they marched down through Leitrim, and they were following along the shore of Loch Allen. And so they crossed the Shannon at Ballantra. And so there's a little wedge of Roscommon that they went through just very quickly by in, by Mount Allen House, um, just coming from Leitrim to cross the Shannon, and then they were back in. So they weren't here for very long. I don't, I'm, there's some rumor that they might have made a camp around there, um, but it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a very small area. But they did go through Roscommon, so. Wow. Wow. We love that. We love that they made their way <laughs> through Roscommon. Yeah, I, I listed in my counties that they went through. They did. They did walk through, but it would have been very quick. So they spent most of their time in Leitrim and Longford in this area. But, but it's still interesting, I guess, to follow their path mm. through the landscape and see where they... Yeah, you absolutely. If you're following their path, you can't not go through Roscommon. Yeah. You have to go through Roscommon. Which, so. which then gives you a little bit of an insight, too, into how the landscape might have been used even just without an army marching through it. Just by like, because would they have followed normal roads or were they going off off route? I mean, I suppose that's the question I'm um, asking. I think they did a combination. So they, the French, wouldn't have been very familiar with the landscape, but they did have Irish rebels with them. There was a number of Irish officers that were with them, like General Teeling is quite famous, or Captain Teeling. Sorry, I get the, <laughs> I'm at, the, I'm so deep into the thesis now, I get all the the ranks mixed up, um, but they they would have had a number of Irish people with them that would have known the landscape. So they were following, I think they would have followed roads for ease of travel because they would have had carts with them. They would have had ammunition with them. It's quite, but it's also quite a few people and they're not going to be walking in a single file. It's just not conducive. It's not sustainable. So, and they would have spread throughout the landscape. I think they would have used roads if they could just because it would be difficult just from my own experience and you, so you can still follow some of these roads and that these you actual can, routes. yeah 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 some of the roads i think are still there for sure oh like, that's very um, cool they've obviously been redone since then but i think it's along the same path a lot of the roads especially the smaller roads that they would have fo- followed or some of the side roads that like other columns would have taken off the main force um you can definitely still follow them that's something quite amazing to actually even consider. So thinking about that, because that's actually super interesting, what other interesting things did you discover? Yeah, so you, I mean, it's it's all there in the landscape, which I thought was really interesting because I was expecting it to be quite ephemeral and just not really having a lot to follow and having to base most of the thesis off of 
just terrain analysis and things like that, which a lot of that is in there, but it's, it's all there. Like, like you said, the roads are still there. It's all there. It's such a big part of the culture and the heritage of the region as well. Like there's like, there's just nothing, like everybody has a story about it. It's, there's just, there's nothing separating it from the culture and the heritage. It's still very much there. Um, and then as far as the survey, I found some cool things as well. Like with metal detection, like I was saying, I was able to kind of, in theory, based off of my statistics and analysis of my metal detection, I was kind of able to find some lines of fire and some clustering and where I, I think what happened would have happened, like because it's quite vague at the minute with any studies that have been done before any historical analysis that just kind of points to an area. So I was able to really narrow that down. And then I was actually able to find a few pits with the with the geophys, which could potentially be the mass graves of from the end of the battle. So that's that's very interesting, I think. That's very cool. So when you say mass graves, can you clarify for our listeners just whose mass graves they might be? Um, so the Battle of Balanamak, at the end of it, there was a... Well, it depends on the narrative you're reading. There was a, um, um, uh, the Irish, there was a lot of Irish rebels killed. They were attacked at the end of it by the government forces, and a lot of them were killed. And so there's folklore and local lore and historical tellings of mass graves associated with this attack of these Irish rebels that were killed of some anywhere from 100 to 500 people that were killed. And so there's... There's folklore of mass graves on the Shanmala Hill in Balanamuk, and I think I was able to locate at least one of these with the geophys. I, like I said, I couldn't excavate, so I can't determine that. But the, with the way the pit looks on the map, it definitely is a good candidate for one. So, Wow, that's really quite uh, phenomenal. It, it must be quite a poignant thing to think that you, you've stumbled across a mass grave. It is. Yeah, it is. It's I don't want to say it's it's like nice to be a part of putting them to rest because there is a monument where I found the pit and there is, you know, there is local folklore so people do are aware of these graves but it is it is kind of it's it is poignant it is it's it means something to be a part of that to be able to find these people and give them which like I said I'm not confident that I have but if I have I'm not well I'm not 100% sure that I have I'm confident that I found something but I, you know, it's, it is poignant. It is. See, and that's it's weird. That's, it's yeah. weird, but it's nice. But it's nice to be a part of this, to be a part of the narrative, to bring their stories to light and find their resting place and be able to be a part of that. And see, that's the real human side of archaeology. It's not just a, a methodological study of, of a site or a culture or a society or a, or a landscape or a, yeah, and I think, time, I think it, there's I think so much with more. Battlefield ar- yeah. I think with battlefield archaeology, it really brings the human part of it to light because with history, of course, they talk about the people, but it's mostly the officers that are talking, and it's you know the the other ones. Everybody else is just kind of grouped into oh the Irish rebels or the you know French forces. Whereas like with archaeology, you don't you can't separate, you can't group them. It's it's very individual, like. These are people, they're all people, and you really see that through the archaeology. Yeah, and actually, speaking of that, you know, I think there was in a conversation we had, one of the interesting things that you also discovered was the, beyond the the, the fighters were, were the women and children that were part of this. Yeah, 
yeah, like like I think I'd said before, it's it's um, it's hard to find the women and children in the archaeological record, but they are there. They're they're there. It's and they're there in the folklore for sure. They're definitely there in the folklore. So there are women and children involved in this, and they're not forgotten. Well, that's quite amazing. That's something we actually touched on in one of our last shows when we were looking at mythology um, in archaeology and, and how even folklore is, with its localization, is, is actually a really important part of that process as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, the folklore was very interesting for this because, like I was saying, this campaign is so, just from start to finish, from Kilala to Balanamuk and everywhere in between, there is folklore associated with this and it's so local and it's so... It's so interesting to look at the folklore. You could do an entire, people have done entire books on just the folklore of this campaign. Guy Biner has done a book, which is amazing, called Remembering the Year of the French, where he just talks about the folklore of this campaign. And it's, it's just amazing to look at. I actually have a message in from Jeremy listening in in Boyle. And he wants to know roughly, like, how long would have these, I suppose, these armies would have spent, we'll say, walking before they got to their destination? How long would it? Sorry, general... sorry, you're breaking up? I'm just wondering how long would a general walk take, we'll say, from armies to get from, we'll say, the place that they leave to exactly the place of battle? It's a question that comes in from Jeremy and Boyle. How long would it take them to walk to different places? Yeah, that's sort of the idea. Like, yeah. like I think that's what Jeremy's asking. Is, is um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of debate about this. Um, it's my personal opinion is that you're not going to be moving armies too, too fast. Um, that's from my own personal experience. And just a general idea. Um, they did move quite fast, however, and these people were like not the Irish rebels, but the French were professional soldiers that were there, so they were trained to do this. They would have been moving faster than your average person. Um, and we have to remember this was 200 years ago, so people were more not more fit, but they were more used to walking long distances and things, especially if they were trained to do so. Um, so there are some instances where they're moving quite fast. Like I think they leave, I mean, the whole campaign from start to finish is two weeks. So they get from, they land in Kilala on the 21st of August, and then they're defeated in Balanamak on, on September 8th. And they have six battles in between, and they camp in Castle Bar for three days. So it's like they're moving quite fast. Wow. Um, and then there's the other element of from Kaluni onwards, so from Kaluni County Sligo, pretty much all the way through to Ballinamuck, they're being chased and harassed by government forces in the rear, in the rear guard. So they're moving quickly because they're trying to get away from that. So it's, 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 it's a hard question to answer. I know that doesn't really answer your question, but um, it depends on a lot of things, weather conditions and things like that. And so they're moving faster in some instances because they're being harassed and they're moving slower in other instances. But I... I mean, I don't have, like, a miles-per-hour answer. No, but that's still okay. a good answer. We have another yeah. question in from Margaret in Athlete. Um, Her question is, 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 say with your, like, your research is done, she wants to know, does, does this get handed into the communities? Do they have access to it afterwards? Um, so I am giving a talk in Sligo in, on, at the end of April. I can't remember what day. He just sent me the date. At the end of April. And so I try, to, I try to engage with the communities that I'm working in. I, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to people and give talks and stuff. I'm hoping to submit papers for local journals and things like that to be published. 
Um, my thesis will be turned into the university um, after it gets graded and sent up and submitted and all of that stuff, and I go through all the process. It's, I think, available for public consumption. I think you can get it from the library, but I'm hoping to... I'm hoping to publish articles and I'm hoping to publish things about this. So I do definitely want to give this back to the communities. I don't want to keep this to myself, this research that I've done. It's not, I, I, I don't believe in keeping this to myself. I have had so much help from all of these communities during the process of this thesis. And this campaign is such a part of their history. I would not ever keep it from them. So I definitely am going to spend a good portion of my energy when I'm done publishing and giving this back to the people that it's, I mean, I'm not giving it back to them. I'm just sharing with them their own history. It's, I'm not taking it from them. It's already theirs. So Yeah, that's amazing. I think that's really the spirit with which all of this work should be done. It's there to be handed back because the more we know about where we've come from, what our landscape means, where, you know, different part times and, and points in, in our evolution have affected us and in different ways, sometimes it's a localized, like with the 1798 rebellion. I mean, it, it's, I think for the communities that, that it affected, it, like you said, it's still part of their, their consciousness and their psyche and their, their myths and their folklore. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't go away. No, it doesn't go away. It's quite powerful. Absolutely. You know, it's really, it really strikes me how, um, you know, diving into all this as well, it really affects um, a community and how you can really bring a lot of... Uh, I suppose it can tell a lot about, I suppose, the area of where they've come from and maybe why the landscape is shaped the way it is. I think it's vital for a lot of people to know that when they're living in an area. So, yeah, that's all really amazing. Thank you so much, Kylie. I, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add or... Uh, no, I don't think so. Thanks so much for having me. I hope I answered questions and didn't sound like I was rambling too much. No, you didn't. It's really interesting. Actually, I do have one more question. So what what drew... General Humbert over here. Why did he come to Ireland? For those that oh, don't know, who don't know this mm. battle in in, in France, yeah. It, yeah, like you've got a, a French general coming over yeah. to help with an Irish rebellion. Why did that happen? <laughs> um, general Humbert is a complicated man, <laughs> um, <laughs> as all men seem to be. <laughs> yeah, General Humbert is a complicated man. The, the reasoning for the French involvement in this rebellion is a tapestry that I do not know if I have enough time to unwind, so I'll see if I can answer it quickly enough. Um, the United Irishmen were the leaders of this rebellion. They were a revolutionary group, and after their acts were deemed seditious and they had to flee the country, a lot of them went to France, including Wolf Tone. He was a part of them a part of the United Irishmen. And um, a lot of them went to France, and they were begging the directorate, the directory there, so the government after the French Revolution, for help in Ireland. And through a series of events and a lot of political maneuvering and failed expeditions, there's one in Bantry Bay in 1797 that's failed, and there's just a lot of moving pieces and stuff going on. The French decide to help, I think they viewed it as a way to get to England to give them another front because they were still at war with England, as they have been and were for many, many, many years. <laughs> and um, they, so they agreed to help. And then it ended up being Humbert, basically because all of because Humbert was just an 
an aide, really. He was like an aide general to one of the main guy that was going to run the whole thing. And through yet another series of unfortunate events, nobody sailed except for Humbert. He was the only one that actually left France and ended up and made it here. And so he was not supposed to be the guy in charge. He was not supposed to have this few troops. He was supposed to have a lot more people. There was supposed to be more people coming to help him. And um, so it's one of those rebellions that was kind of, I don't want to say doomed from the start, because I think they made a good go of it. But um, Possibly cursed. But there was a lot of, yeah, well, it was just a lot of political movement and a lot of stuff going on. And I think Ireland just kind of got caught up in the stuff between France and England and just didn't get as much support as she should have. And so it ended up with just Humbert. So that's how Humbert ended up here, was just through a bizarre twist of political events that happened. And so this guy who was not the head general ended up being the head general of this entire campaign. Well, I have to say that, that absolutely blew me away. It's very interesting information. Definitely, I'm sure it was extremely enjoyable for you diving into all that. And I'm sure that you're still, um, I suppose, seeking more information about it. I think it's fascinating um, what goes on and I suppose the landscape as well and how that ties in with movement. Um, Susie, have you any notes to add on that? No, I just want to say thanks for coming back on and, and diving deeper into the 1798 rebellion for us, Kylie, and battlefield archaeology um, and you know may you really bring more attention to this amazing arm of archaeology and really open it up because it's really quite fascinating and it really um allows us to perceive battles and battlefields from an archaeological perspective and then an historical perspective in a very different way and it's it's really good it makes them really real yeah yeah thanks it's i hope i can I hope I can do that as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much, and I hope you have a beautiful day. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Kylie. Thanks, Kylie. Thanks. Bye. 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 And so I suppose that really concludes today's show, Susie, isn't it? it? Yeah, it does. It does. We've we've journeyed through the 1798 rebellion in a very casual way, but I think I'm hoping for for the listeners, it might if fill in gaps for you if you are familiar with it or inspire you to look a little bit deeper or if nothing else it, you've you've learned a few things that have made you go wow that's that's great and that's what I find with archaeology it really just is a constant surprise to me of what I can discover and learn and and a way to critically assess what's coming my way um, in terms of what I'm being told and it helps me to really look at history in multiple ways multiple ways of thinking I think so and I find myself now when I'm driving I'm looking at hills and I'm wondering mm-hmm. is that a man-made hill is it a is it a land hill is that stone just a stone or has that stone got something unusual going on that's with it? it and that's when you start layering in the landscape into the archaeology and you you make it a landscape rather than mm. one piece of a landscape you really start to see something come alive and it's no so. longer just a, a, a piece of something like a land or it's or a space it it actually takes on life because you see all that has come before it into that moment in time that you're observing very true and i think as well and i'd say listeners would agree um 
I suppose listening to yourself and Kylie, you've come from Australia, Kylie's come from the United States, to see the appreciation that you guys have for the Irish heritage, this the land, the soil, it really does start to to, you know, it, it really does start to, I suppose, invoke something, I suppose, within the Irish community. Maybe we sometimes have a tendency to overlook our land or not see the beauty in the landscape or not question it or not kind of go, oh, I wonder would we just walk, drive by. But now it's, you know, it's really, and I'm sure for listeners as well, starting to make us think and appreciate where we're mm-hmm. from a lot better. And I think it's definitely a, a true saying that sometimes you you're more likely to appreciate lands far away than the lands that are with you. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like here is just it's just like a beautiful big historical playground and it's just one giant in situ piece of continuous history from the end of the Ice Age till now. It is magic here. Absolutely. And Susie, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. <laughs> and thank all our listeners as well for listening in. And guys, again, do remember, like Margaret and Jeremy earlier on, don't be afraid to text into the stu- studio or email us. And we would absolutely love to get answering your greatest curiosities and questions. So that is all from today's show. And we will look forward to see what other worlds we intend to raid as we continue on conquering with our curiosity all of these wonderful things that archaeology and mythology has to offer us absolutely and that is all from today's show all for us take care bye bye